0: aliens of flying sources flying fulfill
1: This is all in a loop. Hey! Welcome to the 131st episode of Two, Writers, and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White and this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing, to screenwriting, to political analysis, to mad magazine essays, to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And after a week of inappropriate pornographic writing talk that I'll never live down, we're back on the right track. Today's guest is Steve Politi the veteran Star-Ledger sports columnist and truly one of the best newspaper writers in America. And today, we're going to delve deep into two of Steve's latest pieces. One, a column on a high school baseball coach who was sued by the player who he hurts to slide in the third base. And the other, on Steve's efforts to track down a little league on who, as a boy, Steve flipped off during a game. It's a technician's chat, and it's right now, I uh, two writers slinging the air. All right, Steve. I'm staring at an article right now from uh, June 28th, 1990, the Bloomfield 1990? life in Bloomfield, <laughs> New Jersey. It's just a little blurb. It says graduation is claiming two of our best and brightest fledgling sports reporters. How can you be sad and happy at the same time? Well, let's take the case of our talented sports reporter, Steve over time. He has done a superb job reporting sports for the Nutley Sun and the Bloomfield life. You <laughs> will be missed. <laughs> that is awesome <laughs> you must have some pretty powerful archives to find that thing
0: that's great yeah, yeah. Um, that was my first job the nutley son i was uh 15 years old making a solid four bucks an hour to write about the uh, the maroon raiders and their sports exploits
1: so yeah that was fun wait so that was actually you were in high school and you were writing for the nutley newspaper i did yes i, I this is how the you know this is how the career started it's
0: funny i sometimes i wonder if like i had gotten a part-time job in like uh you know, like a neurosurgeon's office or something. If it would be different, but no, I got a, you know, I got a job of writing writing stories for four bucks an hour for the town paper and covering the teams when I was yeah, I was junior high school.
1: I had no idea where we were going to go here, but did you know what the hell you were doing at all? Do you look back and do you think that's not bad for a fifteen-year-old, or do you look back and think, oh my god, that's really oh, bad? It,
0: it is, it is just tragically awful. But I think it, it, I mean, like I read, read some of the stories, like you know, of course the soccer the soccer team was ready to kick it into high gear, and you know. <laughs> tennis was gonna serve up a winning season and I was like oh my goodness this is some good stuff I was dealing out to the readers of the Nutley Sun back in the day but but I think it allowed me it did allow me to make those mistakes you know at an early age so when I did get to college I think I was a little ahead it was a little ahead of the game you know when I
1: actually started to to do this for real I um I think I can one-up you which is I was when I was in high school I wrote for my local weekly the patent trader and I was only paid in the sports editor would take me every month for Jewish deli food in Mount Kisco, New York. But the best thing was I ran as a freshman, I was a walk-on on on the University of Delaware cross-country team and he used to write about local athletes and he said to me, just write your own story and we won't put a byline on it. So there was an article, Perlman takes his talents to Delaware. Written by me in the past. That is
0: awesome. We had, I swear, I'm not only lying when we I did. I would do the same thing. I was on the golf team in Nutley High, and so we I would have write a story about the golf team, and I would like I would quote I would quote my friends and quote myself. I mean, ethically, this was not really a good start to the career doing so. But I don't. I mean, how would people how would people possibly connect connect the dots that all of a sudden oh there's a byline by this kid no now look there's a story about his exploits in the Nelly High Golf. I'm sure they, I'm sure no one caught on for you either in Delaware. I'm guessing no. that was, yeah. Right.
1: I also think the better question is, I mean, I think it, it was a fair act for both of us because otherwise who the fuck is going to write about us? Yeah, now you have to do <laughs> the heavy lifting. It's on us. Right. Yes, that, that is so true. Absolutely. To this day. You know, But before I, I really want to dive into two of your articles, but I was actually thinking that you are a unique bird in this day and age, which is you have 21 years at the same shop. So you've been writing 21 years for the star ledger at a time when nobody stays anywhere and where people bounce around and when obviously newspapers are closing and blah, blah, blah. How have you lasted two decades at the same place?
0: Yeah. I just kind of, I've just kind of stayed standing, standing in place when all, all hell is breaking loose everywhere around me. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I mean, this is, you know, and this is kind of, you know, the job I, I, when I grew, I grew up delivering the newspaper and it was a job I wanted as a kid. Um, You know, and I've had I mean, I was <laughs> going back now, I guess, I don't know, 12 years ago, 12 years ago, I had a chance to jump to Yahoo and, you know, do the, do the job there and be, be Pat Forty before they, you know, just went out and hired Pat Forty. Uh, and just, you know, just decided at the time that, 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 I don't know, that this was, I just couldn't see myself doing it. You know, I just, I, I, I like what I do. I like where I work. I like, you know, I like being able to write for the, uh, for the paper I grew up reading, and now the website that people in my neighborhoods read, and it's just you know, it's just been, you know, I I don't know, I guess, you know, this, your podcast has been like writer writers writers therapy for a lot of people, but I guess I've I've always looked at it like you know that the career ladder that someone else expects you to climb, you don't necessarily have to climb it yourself to prove anything. So this is this is what I've what I've done, and I've, I've enjoyed it.
1: That's interesting. Is there a moment in your career? Maybe the Yahoo moment was that moment where. You know, I feel like we all have these times when we're climbing and, or when, when the climb is really appealing and it's all about having a high-profile byline or having access to, I don't know, book deals or whatever, Sports Illustrated or ESPN or Yahoo. Or Like, was there a point in your career where you sort of acknowledged to yourself, I am happy being here and this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do and I don't need to be overly ambitious as far as always looking for the next place.
0: You know, I, it's funny. I don't know if I, if I made, reached that decision before I realized I reached that decision. Does that make any sense? Like there, yeah. know, there were, there were a few years after I, you know, I, I decided not to do the Yahoo thing where I was like, ah, shit, you just, you didn't do that because you were scared. You didn't do that because you thought you were going to fail. You didn't, you know, you didn't want, you didn't want to test your limits. Um And it just took, you know, it took a little while afterward for me to realize like, you know, hey, I'm you know, very glad that they didn't happen. That, that I'm, you know, that I I am I am happy I'm happy doing what I'm doing. And there's something to be said for being happy and for, you know, for for enjoying and having your career in the proper context of your life. And you know, being home for dinner now with my kids and having you know having a job where I can set my own hours largely. And you know, there's there are a lot of things about it that you know when you put it in perspective, and you're you're, you're about my age now, when you put it in perspective you well, your 46
1: year old eyes as opposed to your you know. 32-year-old dies, it really makes a big difference. I actually said to someone recently, you get into this business and it's all about, I get to write sports and I get to cover interesting events. And then one day you're the only dad dropping your kid off at his class, or you're the only (laughs) dad going to your daughter's water, water polo game and you're surrounded by the mothers and you're the only dad. And you realize that the benefits of this job far outweigh covering a world series.
0: Oh, absolutely. There's no question. People, I, I I speak at, I speak at journalism classes all the time and you get, you get that question like, what is the best part of your job? And I answer, I work at home. (laughs) And they'll look at you like, Mm -hmm. "Uh, I thought you were going to say you get to meet the athletes. I'm like, no, that's not really in the top 10 at this point. Yeah. (laughs) Pit point for me. Yeah. It's true. I mean, it's just. You know that is that is one of the great side benefits of doing this. And I'm 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 that dad too, the dad that dropped, to let see them walk off to school in the morning, pick them up at the end of the day, put dinner on the table. I mean there are a lot of weekends. Don't get me wrong. You know especially football season where you know I'm, I'm not standing there for my daughter's soccer game on a Sunday because you know the Giants have to lose lose another game. But it's you know <laughs> during the week it's that is one big benefit for it absolutely.
1: All right. So I have a uh, I have a friend. He's a writer. He's not the Michael Lewis of Moneyball, but he's another writer. He's a longtime newspaper writer, and he's been. He's been begging me to have you on this podcast. He sent me a link to a piece you wrote that appeared a couple weeks ago. The headline was, he told a kid to slide, and then he got sued. The subhead is, what happened next in the New Jersey courthouse? Threatened to change youth sports forever. It's this ridiculously amazing story that I almost feel like should have gotten more play nationally than it did because it's so preposterous. Your leader was John Souk sits with shoulder slouched and his head down at the defendant's table in courtroom 301 a stuffy wood-paneled space inside the Somerset County judicial complex. The 31-year-old middle school teacher scribbles in a notebook as his reputation is shredded. The plaintiff's attorney in civil docket number L000629-15 has spent two full days portraying the co-defendant as an inattentive and unqualified lout. He is, they argue, a villain who destroyed the future of a teenager he was supposed to protect. And it's a story, this guy, your your John Souk, 31-year-old, was a JV baseball coach who was coaching third base in a game seven years ago, had a kid slide and the kid tore up his leg and never played baseball again and was suing. It's the craziest story I've read in forever and ever. And I'll just ask a big broad one, like, how did this come to you and why did you decide to write about it?
0: Yeah. So this was, you know, this case had been going on for for seven years to weaving its way through the courts and it was originally dismissed at one point, And it was a headline someone picked up on, I don't even remember who, but someone wrote the story of you know, the headline that you would expect to, to see, you know, kids who's coach for telling them the slide. Uh, and at the time, the coach wasn't talking to anybody, but I, I filed it away and put it, you know, put it on a story list. And we we're talking this spring. It was just a, a really slow, you know, a couple of weeks. And I'm looking for enterprise stories, something to do, something to fill time in the spring. And I just, you know, went going through my list and that was on it. Uh, reached out to the coach at the time, uh, and he said, yeah, you know, I would love to. And I, I, pitched, I made the pitch I made to him was, you know, this is something that all high school coaches need to read. You know, you need to tell your story for the benefit of other people. Uh, and he agreed. And he, he said to me in the email, I can't talk to you now, but I will gladly talk to you after the trial. And I'm just sitting like, whoa, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. the trial? Like we hadn't, like, like we, I had no idea. I thought it was dismissed. Like the last time we read about it, it was done. So at that point, I'm like, yeah, uh, we can wait until after the trial. Uh, When is the trial going to be anyway? (laughs) Uh, Um, so, you know, I just started reaching out to the attorneys and, uh, found out who they were. And, uh, you know, everyone said to me, well, this, this is going to get, this is going to get settled. There's no way this goes to trial. Nobody in their right mind would take this to trial. It's going to settle. And I finally got the, his attorney, the coach's attorney and on the phone, he's like, he said to me, look, no, this is, we are not going to, we are not settling. I've never been more certain in my life that this thing is going to trial. So I'm like, all right, I, I will see you in court, sir. <laughs> so, uh Yeah. So that was it. I mean, then, then you know, once I knew that was going to be, this was actually going to happen, you know, the rest was just showing up and trying to, it's the first time I've ever done covered a court, the court case in my life. So showing up and figuring out where I can sit and how, to, and how to get there.
1: And how many days were you in court for?
0: It was a three day thing. Yeah. So I, I but I got there right away and I don't know, like, I'm sure you're, you're at the point of your career, Jeff. Where it's like any time you can do something new after writing 355 Eli Manning columns, like the idea of like being able to sit, actually cover a you know something different. It, it was just that was just thrilling for me. I was had so much fun. I mean, I, I got there from the moment that jur- the jury selection was 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 uh, started and stayed throughout the day. It was over. It started Monday morning. It was over Wednesday afternoon.
1: Were you the only reporter there? Only
0: reporter. Yep. Yep. Only person. Wow. Only person in the court when it started. Like the first day. You know, they 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 said all rise, and I'm I'm the only guy who rose. So yeah,
1: my favorite moment, one of my favorite moments in journalism, is when you know you're alone and you have something great because it doesn't it, happen that often.
0: It's very rare, yes. And that was you know that was part of the uh, what also made it exciting because you 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 know I knew that I would have my t- I would have time to tell the story properly. I didn't have to you know rush out. In this day and age, we're constantly worried about you know getting it first, getting it up first. And I I knew when I didn't see anybody there that we could you know, spend some
1: time with the story and, and do it the right way. So what are you, when you're sitting in the court, what are you looking for? What are you paying attention to? And what are you actually thinking about as you're hearing all that? Like, do you feel like you have to keep an open mind or do you enter this with the idea this is utterly preposterous and I'm, I'm wed to that idea?
0: <clears throat> uh, I came in, I definitely had that idea in the back of my head when I started, you know, like it was one of those things where I'm, I'm going to go here and I'm going to crack, you know, I'm going to crack 15 jokes and it's going to be, you know, this is going to be a, a funny story, but it really did. You know, sitting there in the court, the first thing the judge says is, I hope to the jurors, I hope you'll keep an open mind. And as I'm listening to the testimony, yeah, I mean, it was, it was hard not to keep an open You know, the kid suffered just a catastrophic injury. You know, I mean, his ankle broke and he had five surgeries on it and he did this, never played another game in his life. This is his first baseball game. So imagine you think you're, you know, you're a hotshot athlete at, at high school and you show up for the baseball team and everyone thinks this is the beginning of a great career and that's it. It just, you know, he never played again. Uh, so it's a tragedy for the kid and, and for the father. I mean, the father was there. He saw it happen. I think he he said he had nightmares about it. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, initial, the initial reaction is, of course, this is crazy. Who sues their coach? But, you know, when you're there and you're hearing their, the story and how it unfolded, it's hard not to, to feel
1: for them. I think I would have fallen into the temptation of making fun of the whole thing as a farce. And I think I would have done stupid one-liners and cracked on it. And you didn't do that at all. Like, you actually took this. You wrote this with a seriousness um and i wonder how much of that stems from the fact that like you're watching this kid whose sports career was kind of devastated and there's some there is some legitimate sadness to that
0: yeah no that's exactly it and and the goal of the story was for me to you know and i i, I went back and forth like, am i going to be a character in this thing you know it was like first person or not first person and ultimately decided to do first person because You know i wanted people to sort of feel like i felt as sitting there watching you know i mean that was that was kind of like you know uh, and that's how i felt as i'm watching this thing you're like first you feel like oh this is this is this is crazy this is bs What, what the hell are we doing here then you're like oh this is awful for the kids and then i had the the real the real crazy moment where i'm like oh shit the coach is going to lose this case. I mean, there's like this real moment when you realize, like, I just assumed these lawyers were, you know, ambulance chasing uh, nobodies, but they the the, 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 the lawyers representing the, the athlete were like really good at their jobs. And it became evident immediately that there's a reason that this was in court at all. It's because they, you know, had, had won the appeal, appeal successfully, had argued the case perfectly. Uh, and, you know, I thought for a while there that they had done no, enough that some of these jurors we're going to look at this and go, you yeah, know, well, they might have a point.
1: I really love this story. He wrote, uh, he reads Sue's dep- deposition testimony from three years ago when the coach said a slide was safe anywhere from outside of two feet. Then he approaches a witness stand and stands with his body pressed against it. I'm now two feet from you, he says. It was your belief that a runner running at full speed from this distance that you could safely instruct him to slide into third base? Is that your position? By the end, the whole thing feels like an Abedin Costello routine. Second base, left field, I don't know, third base. And I start to wonder if the jurors can follow the details. It has become a classic he said, she said case, or he slid, she slid with the word of a father and son against that of a coach. It's so freaking good. It comes to the end of the trial. I mean, are, you, are you thinking, okay, he's he, the coach is probably going to walk away okay with this? Or are you actually thinking this kid might actually win his lawsuit against a coach for telling him to slide?
0: So there's a point in this trial where they bring up the umpire and I did, it's hard to get into all the details in the story, but so they bring up these umpire and the umpire is carrying himself like he's God's gift to umpiring. Uh, and they cut in the, and the lawyers are cross-examining him and, it, and they realize during the cross examination that the, the umpire did not actually see the play. So one of the two witnesses they called you know, actually didn't see what happened. So, and I guess this I didn't know this, but I guess this is extremely rare. The judge had to stricken this entire testimony from the record. So as this is happening that's the moment I'm like oh, oh my god these guys are out of their they're, they're in over their skis here they're going to they're, they're going to lose this case. Um when I when I when I finally came around to thinking back to okay common sense is going to prevail is when the judge read what They had to prove like what reckless means in a court of law. And again, I don't want to bore writers here. People looking for writing stuff, but I mean, to be reckless, the the coach had to, you know, knowingly. There would be a high probability when he said that kid to slide that he was going to get hurt. I mean, that's 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 the bar they had to clear. And as he's reading the definition of reckless, you could kind of see it on the juror's face. Like, well, that's not. I mean, you know, that's not reckless but he, he didn't know the kid was going to get hurt. You know, that, you could kind of tell that it had gotten through to them at that point.
1: The, the kid's dad name was Rob, and he wrote, he is convinced his own clumsy testimony doomed his son's chances to win the case. But it is a play at third base itself that consumes him night after night, and he figures it will for the rest of his life. I ask him, was this all fair suing a coach? He says he's a business owner who would never file a frivolous lawsuit. He believes his son was wrong, that too many of the facts of what happened on the ball field didn't come to light in the trial. He doesn't lay all the blame at Souk's feet. He wants accountability from administrators who gave him the job. Without he believes enough preparation to keep his son safe. What about the next kid? Who will protect him? And then there's a quote: "You have people just taking the extra eight thousand dollars who don't know what the hell they're doing." He says somebody's got to be responsible. Nobody is. And you write it with real sympathy for this guy, and it's kind of hard for me to have sympathy for the guy because I just think it's a total (laughs) bullshit lawsuit. Were you feeling empathy toward him after you know he walks away, he lost his kid, never played baseball again? Were you feeling empathy or, or? was there a part of you that was like, come on, this is just bullshit? No,
0: I mean, it was real empathy, yeah. And I think, it, you know, <laughs> they, they had gone through something really hard and deeply personal, and it was, I mean, it was, you know, there's no question it affected that kid and that family and impacted them, and it impacted them for a long time. Um, you know, and it's funny, that quote, I use that quote purposely because it's the one thing I heard from a lot of people that, you know, he's got a point in a sense because there are a lot of high school coaches who – are taking the eight grand and like social studies teacher who, you know, never played a lick of softball in his life, but sees the opening. I'm like, Oh, I can just drive the kids to the park and, you know, set set up the lineup card and put the bats and balls out and it'll be, you know, I'll make, i make some extra money. And that was the point he was trying to get across that there isn't like a, a, a standard that these coaches have to be held to. And I think what he hoped would happen would be that what everyone thought would happen was that the board of education would admit some wrongdoing and would, would, would give them, give them the money. But to their credit, in a lot of ways, the insurance company said, no, if we settle this case, we're going to have 20 more on our desk and we're not going to do it. So, uh, but to the, big, to the bigger question, yeah, I did feel I did feel a little sorry
1: for him. To jump a little to process here. So you sit there, you go to court for your days, you have this piece, you interview everyone. Are you writing it as you go along? Are you jotting down ideas? Do you just go home and finally sit down one day and write? Like, how do you actually put this thing on on your laptop?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was... <laughs> I did have a structure in my head as I was sitting there, you know, like and it it it, it dawned on me early on that, um, you know, that that realization I had when it was like, oh, this is serious and this is going to impact a lot of people. This could impact a lot of people or certainly, you know, uh, that that was that was going to be the theme of the story. And so from there, you know, I just kind of decided that, you know, I was going to try to write it like. Any courtroom drama and, you know, my years, maybe my years of watching law and order reruns growing up, it finally had, finally had, ru- you know, <laughs> had rubbed off that I wanted to tell it in the nat- you know, the natural narrative of how the whole thing unfolded from, you know, from the start of the case to the end. And I guess that's why so many people watch court TV or do whatever, read these, you know, read court dramas because they do have a natural, a natural ebb and flow to them that, that, you know, lend to the drama.
1: All right. So your lead is John Suke sits with his shoulder slouts and his head down at the defendant's table. What makes you start a story with that?
0: You know, I wanted, I definitely wanted to be, build the story around him. Like I knew that from the start that I, I told him that, that I was going to, that he was going to be the central character in this thing because I think that there are so many coaches and that's the, I, I must've gotten 500 emails on this thing. And I would say half of them were from just from coaches. Like I coach, I coach a little league team. I coach, you know, I mean, a rugby team. It was just crazy. The number of people who, you know, can relate to being him. Uh, so I, I was going to make sure that, uh, you know, he was going to be the start of it. He was going to be the end of it. And every other detail, every other character that that that's introduced is going to kind of be introduced around him. So, I mean, that was just, you know, and from there, once I, you know, decided, decided I wanted to start it with, you know, with him sitting there with his head down, I wanted to make sure when I ended it, that there was going to be, and then he gave me the perfect ending which was him, you know, at the end of this whole thing, finally found out this is over, he's got a game to coach, you know? So it just, it just kind of made for a nice, I don't know, the perfect uh, arc, I
1: guess. I love that you, uh, in the second paragraph, you say the plaintiff's attorney, and then you say in civil docket number L-000629-15. I'm a huge, huge fan of the car was a Toyota Prius with (laughs) 162,523 miles. What is that? Like, how do you? I really am. I'm obsessive about that stuff. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I think you are too. Yeah. Why? The I, like, just, what is it about that? The more stuff?
0: detail that you can add to any story, I think it's just better. You know, it's just, uh, and people love, people love little details and love, love to, to, to do that. And I mean, any, any, any great writer you've had on here, and I believe I've listened to a bunch of these podcasts, uh, are that way, you know, they just, just, they, they, they find the little things that other people might have missed and, and make sure they include it. And yeah. So, um, you know, and I scoured before this trial, I scoured all the depositions. I mean, I got, I got, I went in deep on this thing. You know, I made sure I had conversations with everybody before it started, just so I had a notebook full of stuff. And I talked to, I, I'm guessing you've had Dan Wetzel on the podcast. I don't know if you have or not, but I talked to Dan Wetzel. I think who is the, you know, the, the best sports writer at covering these trials. And I asked him for advice and his thing was like, you've just got to take. No one's going to come to you at the end of this thing with a transcript. You know, you've got to take furious notes and make sure you write down every single thing you have see that, that happens because you're not going to be able to go on to. You know, now I think sports are going to get a little lazy because the play happens in front of us. And then, you know, 45 seconds later, the NFL's tweeting it, you know, so you can go look look and see what happened. Yeah. You know, it's not going to be the case in this when you're covering a story like this. So, you know, I was very careful to make sure I, I wrote down every single thing that that was in front of me.
1: Wait, so you're sitting in the courtroom. You have a. No- are you recording on a micro cassette recorder, or are you just writing everything in a notepad?
0: They said not to record, so I was worried that I was going to get kicked out. But I still did start the app <laughs> on my in my pocket, like like as if the, I mean the bailiff was the bailiff was basically asleep. You know, there's nobody in this courtroom <laughs> in Somerset County, and like some you know, day. Like he was going to say, "Hey, you get the hell out of here!" With that. Like i but of course I'm like sneaking it in. Like oh boy, I'm going to be careful here. Uh, but yeah, I did. I did recorded it, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to listen to, you know, 10 hours of it. So I, I, I had it there. So just, you know, for some, from some details that I want to make sure I had right, I could go back and find it. But for the most part, yeah, I was just, I was just writing, writing everything
1: down furiously. So I feel like you had an opportunity here to go old school, like me writing about myself uh, for the patent trader. And you could have written the piece, a superstar, star ledger veteran star ledger award-winning columnist was arrested Thursday. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think that would have been great. Yeah, that would have been a good first person story. What did you do wrong? I uh, kind of set my tape recorder on honey in the civil docket L whatever the hell it is. Yeah. That would have been good.
1: I just want to say I'm not saying I have I'm not saying I have done the same thing you did running a recorder in a courtroom. <laughs> but I'm I'm not saying yeah. I haven't.
0: <laughs> but they do put the they put the fear of death in you of course you're in the like you know you're in a court it's like that's ever see this is gonna be a good one ever see what's happening that show of course and, and oh you, what? rerun, and rerun doobie the doobie brothers you know that's in the back of your head that's something's gonna be you know you're gonna get up and all of a sudden the trench coat opens and the tape recorder's on the ground and the doobie brothers are staring from the stage at you going oh no you've been busted yeah
1: I love how the concert stops because rerun had a tape recorder. <laughs> exactly.
0: The whole thing shuts down so the doobies can look
1: down from the stage with scorn and shame. I just lost 90% of the audience <laughs> for this podcast it's over. Just with
0: or gained or gained a new, you know, 5%. Oh, they're fucking they're talking what's happening.
1: The vast majority of people who know what, what who are familiar with the episode by episode <laughs> uh, Chronicling of what's happening Do not know what podcasts yeah, are That's true so it's <laughs> That's a so that's very good bad. point fair, fair point Before we continue With two writers Slinging yang, A quick word from our sponsor Hey this is Jeff Perelman And I'm here with my daughter Casey And we just finished watching Grease 2 Which is inspiring this ad Alright Casey Danny Zuko or Michael? Michael Olivia Newton-John Or Michelle Pfeiffer? Pfeiffer Carnival or Luau? Luau Tab Hunter cameo or Lorenzo Lamas cameo? I don't know who those people are. All right. How about this? New Jersey General's hat from 503-sports.com, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Or New Jersey General's t-shirt from 503-sports.com, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Didn't Donald Trump own the Generals? Yeah, he, he did. Can I just get a pink ladies jacket and call it even? i ask. You wrote a piece uh, in August, really, really good. I was a bird flipping little league menace and it's time to come clean. And it's a, it's a column you wrote about flipping off of uh, uh, the, you know, volunteer ump where you probably got paid four bucks for the game when, when you were a kid and then finding the umpire all these years later, your, uh, your lead, I like reading lead real quick is I could taste victory and all its spoils, the game ball, the pats on the back, the customary slice of post-game pizza and plastic cup of orange high C. Hell, I could march right up to that concession stand, the one in the cinder block building across the parking lot and demand a second cup. I was about to earn it. Then you put in parentheses. And besides my mom was probably behind the (laughs) counter. This was 1980 something. The details from so long ago, as most people my age know, are getting soft around the edges. And I was about to have my one shining moment of athletic glory. I was about to make little league history in my own mind, rounding third base with nothing between me, home plate and destiny. And this is about, you you played for uh, a deli team. You were sponsored by a deli. Bill Tones Deli, yep, yep. Bill Tones Deli and you're playing in Nutley. Gantner's hardware was your opponent and you get called out by an ump and you flip them off double birds. And all these years later, you decide to uh, track the umpire down. It It's so ridiculous that it's <laughs> fantastic. It's it's like every now and then, you know how, don't you sometimes get pangs of jealousy when you see someone write something and you're like, I should have written that. Oh, geez, like what? D- Daily, yes. Right. So I had that with this. In the same space where you have written your, you know, as you've said, your 533 Eli Manning columns, what makes it okay to write a column about tracking down the ump you flipped off when you were whatever, 12 year old?
0: You know, this, and this is something I probably wouldn't have done even five years ago. I don't know. I think, I think the internet now, I think the way our website is, I think, you know, there's just more room for personal stories. People like them, especially if they're relatable. Uh, And I just decided that this one would probably be relatable to a lot of people. And, uh, you know the idea started when my father is perfectly healthy he's in his 70s but he's death cleaning like a lot of old people do They're getting rid of stuff in this house i don't know why but he drops off the photo album of all of my you know classroom photos all of my team photos and as i'm flipping through flipping through the photo album i just come up i come upon that team photo and i'm just i'm just sitting there thinking like gosh, I still remember that game when I flipped off the hump. and Mrs. The, the my my best friend's mom at the time. The reaction, the reaction from her when she sees this of like this horrified Stephen, no! <laughs> I mean, on on this little league field, and it just you know, I just saw how ridiculous it is. But like, I you know, just the stuff that sticks with you from your childhood, and it's just like in the it's just ingrained in the back of your head. Uh, and I just didn't know how I, how I could possibly write about this, but then it just dawned on me, I wonder if I could find the up. Uh, and so I just set out to, you know, I went on this long thing to, to try to try to find them. Yeah.
1: I mean, I actually think I haven't talked about this much in this podcast, finding people, the yeah. process of finding right. people, right. which obviously is we're about the same age is a lot easier now oh, <laughs> than geez. it was when we started this business. It's yeah. a joke. Right. I love when people complain that they can't find someone. I'm like, give me, give me four hours. Yeah. I can pretty much find any true. It is true. at this point. Yeah. How'd you find Timmy Coaster? How'd you go and find
0: him? <laughs> well, this, you know, this started with, I if stupidly, I should have started with social media, but I started by calling like, you know, some people like, who still are in the, i just curious if they had records, if they knew who a lot of the umpires were, maybe somebody was the assigner back in the day. And it turned out that the little league had the, the little league actually had folded in with another little league. So they had no idea what I was talking about. So that was a dead end. But then I put it on, I put it on Facebook and, uh, you know, didn't really get a response, put it on Facebook again. And finally, a girl who was on Gantner's Hardware who I knew, you know, I remembered her being on that team. Again, I can't remember, you know, the the guy I met yesterday morning at the bus, but for whatever reason, I know the roster of Gantner's Hardware 35 years later. But anyway, um, so So she says that, yeah, that's Timmy. I'm like, all right, that's great. Timmy who is like, I don't remember. All right. Well, could you ask? Well, my dad was the manager. I was like, Oh, great. Ask your dad. And you know, the dad, the dad came back with Timmy Costa. So then I did like every archive search and like, I mean, putting the in Nexus Lexus, all the, in every database search I could on not uh, Timmy Costa and Nutley and nothing came up because it was Timmy, it was Tim Coster So that I figured I finally put on social media, like, does anybody know a Tim Costa It would have been a little league ump. And one of them, somebody responded, Tim Coster. And at that point, you know, I I, could, I got his number within 15 minutes and then spent the next, you know, four hours <laughs> staring at the phone like, how am I going to begin this conversation? <laughs> so how do you begin the conversation? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I just I had just started. It was funny. I, I said to him, like, hey, Tim, look, this is Steve Politi from StarLedger.com. Like, this is going to be the most bizarre call you get all day. And he goes, oh, no, I know who you are. And the first thing that pops in my head is like, oh no, he knows who I am because he remembers me flipping him the. I swear to God, like it's in my head. Oh shit, he's been waiting for this call now for like <laughs> he's been waiting for this call for thirty five years. He knows it was me that I flipped him off. But of course, he-, he just knew that I worked for the newspaper, and I actually had done a story for the Notley Sun. Uh, second reference, Nutley Sun of this call on him, you know, I- and I was- on one of his teams. You know, 30 years ago. So he, he remembered, he remembered me from there. He did not remember the great double bird flip. Uh, unfortunately, but, um, you know, it was great. And he was just, you know, he just was the perfect, like you, your expectations as a journalist, like you're like, Oh, what's this guy going to do? Is he going to play along? Is he going to be funny? And he was, he was every bit of both. Like he, you know, he told stories about other instances and, you know, they said he didn't hold it against the players who, who do this stuff. It's, it's the parents who really aggravate him when some girls, diving for a ball and the the ball pops out of her glove. You know, he was just really, he was like the perfect interview that, uh, and really made the story possible.
1: Were you at all disappointed that he didn't remember getting flipped off?
0: (laughs) I was a little, i was a little bit. Yeah. It was like, I was hoping that he would like, Oh yeah, I do remember that was against Ganners hardware. Wasn't it? Um, But you know, but the fact, the fact that he did, I mean, you know, I, the fact he didn't really, I don't think it detracted from the story too much. Uh, you know, if he did, I guess it would have been kind of funny if he, you know, the other thing someone said to me, this is great. Someone said that instead of apologizing to him, you should have told him to fuck
1: off again. <laughs> and oh, go, that would be great.
0: would have been a better ending. And I'm like, you know what? You're probably right. That would have been a better ending. But,
1: oh. You could have ended with, and he's still fucking wrong. <laughs> exactly. <But that's> it. <laughs> fuck you, Ganners. <laughs> I'm done with you. you just suck. Suck.
0: That would have been it. Yeah, perfect.
1: I'm sure in your career, because I know in my career, like many, many, many awkward phone calls or awkward questions I have to ask people, uncomfortable questions. How do you psych yourself up for those? And have you found in your career it gets easier, or is it the same awkwardness as when you were twenty two?
0: Uh, it definitely gets easier. There's no question. I mean, when I was er- early in my career, it was just I would just dread that part of the job, you know. And I, it's funny, I would dread like even sometimes simple phone calls. I, I don't, you know, you know, just especially when you're calling someone out of the blue or calling someone who you know a higher station and society or life or whatever um that uh, you know it was always take it would always take me a little while to work to work up the dialing the last number um i think now though you know at this stage of stage of my career it's you know I, I, there's very few scenarios that i haven't done already phone call wise you know um and uh i don't know it's just it's just gotten i think
1: it just gets a lot easier the more you do it is my favorite question i ever ask anyone what's your um what's your worst confrontation you've had with an athlete or a subject ever <laughs> uh I, have, I don't know if it's my
0: worst one, but I have a very funny one. Um, my for one of my first jobs out of college, I, I was uh, I worked for the News and Observer in in North Carolina, and so the Carol the Hartford Whalers moved to North Carolina, became the Carolina Hurricanes, and literally they looked around the newsroom and said, "Does anybody has anybody seen a hockey game?" And I was like, "The one guy, yeah, I know hockey," so I became the beat writer for the, the Carolina Hurricanes, and you know, you know, early, early in your career. And you guys have talked about this. You've had a great podcast with Greg Doyle about this topic, but early in the career, you think you are the shit and you tend to write things, overwrite things, take shots. We don't need to take shots. I was doing all of that. And then some I get with this hockey team. And so I had written, there had a guy in this team called Stu Grimson, who was the grim reaper was, I mean, that was his, yeah. it's yeah, a great he, name. He was, he was an enforcer and he, he, you know, so he, he was like a fan favorite. He played like 800 games or something crazy and scored like six goals. So I was there for one of the times he scored a goal. And I've written in the story, just like a throwaway line, like Grimson, who scores as often as Haley's Comet circles the sun. There's some, some douchey, just total douchebag comment. And so, so the yeah. next, so then I'm showing up at practice the next day and the goalie, this guy named Trevor Kidd is coming down the stairs and he sees me and goes, uh oh. I'm like, what's up, Trevor? He goes, Oh, somebody's looking for you. I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh, you're going to find out. So I, I go, shit. So I open up the door to the, the locker room and there's, <laughs> there's, there's the, there's the Grim Reaper. There's Stu Grimson and he is, I mean, he is stark naked on the other side of the other side of the locker room. And he sees me walk in and he looks at me and he just points with his finger. Uh, Steve, a word, please. Across the... So then I have to like, perp walk across the entire with the entire Carolina hurricane's roster going <laughs> you're in trouble uh and i get there the, the, i mean you know like most of inf- everybody's cover of hockey knows that most enforcers were like the best talkers of any team and he was great i mean he was okay he just said <laughs> i just do not appreciate being mocked i apologize i mean i just like apologize profusely but, but you know you're actually right Stu. i just thought it was a funny line I'm just trying to break into the business. I do all this stuff just to like kind of talk him down a little bit. He was fine. But of course, he's still standing there, you know, stark naked in front of me and towering over me with his, you know,
1: well, well well-used fists. So I just want you to know, I looked up Stu Grimson. Stu Grimson had a long NHL career. (laughs) (laughs) Stu Grimson was no, you're like, you're making it sound like his claim to fame is, being naked in front of you and scoring six no. goals. This guy he had-
0: was an enforcer for years. Yes, and he became like the lead attorney for the, or the players' association or something. He was like a really smart guy. Uh, but yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, he uh, that was my run-in yeah. with,
1: with with Stewie, as they call them. Is there a good way? Is there a good way for journalists to handle those sort of situations? I mean, we, you know, obviously I had John Rocker. We all have these moments yeah. where like yeah. athletes want to kill you. Actually, you know what's funny? It feels like that doesn't happen anymore. Am I wrong on that? Does it Do those things even happen anymore? You know, I
0: bet you it happens much less often. You're totally right. Because, you know, they're just not, I, I don't know, I could be wrong, but I just, I certainly don't think anybody on the Giants or any any professional athlete is really reading the stuff we write closely anymore, or, or they're told not to, and they're certainly told not to respond. Uh, there's so much of it. That's the thing. You know, there's just so, there's so much available out there on, on the teams. There's so much online. They get it from so many sides now on social media too, that I think the smart ones at least are no better than the two. I mean, that's not to say it doesn't happen. There's I mean, there's been instances, you know, with the Giants a, a couple of years ago, it was offensive tackle, pushed one of the beat riders. I mean, it's still, it still happens, but I think it's more likely to happen based on, you know, a contentious relationship maybe than it is based on something you wrote. Does that make sense? Like it's something, like you know, mm-hmm. you've been asking this guy t- questions for annoying questions forever. And now he's gonna, he's gonna confront you on it. But like the old days, I mean, you hear stories about like, you what know, the Yankees Clubhouse looked like in, in, in the nineteen seventies or something. I mean that those days are gone. And Krie- Kriegel was on your podcast and told a bunch of great stories about, you know, confrontations, but I, I think that
1: that's unfortunately I mean, fortunately those days are those days are over. Do you feel like athletic relationships are over? Like obviously through the years you've written a lot about the Giants. Do you feel like relationships between player and columnist, maybe the way it was when you were first writing about that team, is Daniel Jones right ever gonna be like be like, oh, hey, Steve, good to see you. You know, come sit down, let's talk. No, or is that right. just a dead idea? I
0: think that, at least, I mean, he. I guess that Daniel probably knows the names of the, you know, the, the beat writers who are there every day in front of him. But or maybe the, you know, if he did a profile of ESPN or SI or something, that someone who you know they spent a lot of time with. But yeah, the people around because they're always and it's always a controlled atmosphere. And it's funny, we just like did like a. Something in our office about, you know, finding good stories and finding good enterprise stories. And my advice was to like leave the locker room because it's just no, there's just no chance there anymore. I mean, you're just you're constantly surrounded by 50 people. There's a guy from the team recording every word that everyone says. You know, it's just, it's just really hard, especially in the NFL. And I, I've seen it a little bit in hockey that I've covered, uh, you know, and, and baseball, the guys don't want to be there at all. Um, so, you know, it's, the, I just always find like the best stories for that reason are just not, you know, there's just, you, they don't start in the locker room anymore. And I think that's a, that's a big part of it. That's just hard to, hard to get access to these guys now.
1: All right. Well, let me ask you then. Let's say, um, they want to do, we want whatever, 3000 words on Daniel Jones. Like yeah. we want a 3000 word deep dive into Daniel Jones. And you know, you're going to, you know, you start in the locker room, you're going to crap cliches and whatever. In 2019, you're given that assignment. How do you approach it? I mean, I would start, i start from the edges, you know? I mean,
0: I would try to find, and this is this is something I actually talked about this summer we were going to do. Like, I would try to find the, the 15 things that people did not know about Daniel Jones. And that means talking to, I don't care if it's someone who, you know, getting the high school roster, you, you know, getting, you know, in the yearbook, whatever it might be, just finding a way to get as many people who knew him at some stage of their life and then get, you know, just get little details about, about things that you know, right. And that's always like a good, good way of approaching it, taking a big story and, and approaching it through the small lens. You know, like I just want to know like anything, anything that just tells me a little bit more than this guy went to Duke and this guy's, you know, boring. And this guy's got a good family and this guy's a good athlete. Just, you know, the little stuff around him. That's usually how I would approach something like that.
1: I would much rather know about Daniel Jones that his senior year in Duke he always went to the same barista every day on his way to class. Right. Go to Starbucks. He always insists on the same barista. Then he threw a really tight spiral for the twelve scouts who were there on a Thursday. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. And it's even hard. It's funny. Like it's even hard to find that stuff. I mean, hard to find that stuff about these athletes. So, like I'm always amazed when a guy like like Wright Thompson comes up and does like Tiger. That's a fasting story in Tiger Woods. I'm like, how does he get anything on these? And, like they cut they they cut out their circle their circles so small. They scare people, and they're not talking about them. Uh, it's almost why, like, I don't know if you like, if you read a list of the best stories of the year in sports, they're almost always like things that are far afield or, you know, I- involving something where, you know, it's it's so rare that you would get one off like the Yankees or get one off a big team or a star athlete because it's just harder to, harder to get any, get any dirt, getting goods on. Them. Actually, that's a
1: really fascinating, like when I was a kid and when you were a kid, probably you remember this, the, I mean, I was very young, but the, uh, the whole Reggie Jackson, I'm the straw that stirs the drink quote, which was a famous right. quote when Thurman, when Thurman Monson and Reggie Jackson took place to a reporter in a bar by spring training where Reggie Jackson right? was sitting. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. yeah. So like <laughs> it was two guys talking like Reggie Jackson and a reporter. Not only is that far fetched now, that doesn't, that just doesn't exist.
0: Right. Yeah. That, that there'd be an athlete who would allow himself to be near a reporter while consuming alcohol is almost, yeah. Even that part is hard, is hard to imagine. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's, it's sad. It's just, it makes the job, uh, it makes the job harder. I think for people who are covering teams and covering beats, um, you know, but someone like, you know, me or like yourself, I mean, I just, I just try, I just, when I'm looking for stories now, I just try to get a far,
1: as far away from, from that stuff as I can. So do you find like, um, Eli Manning sitting on the bench and kind of what is almost certainly his final year with the Giants, watching his young guy replace him in the same way he replaced Kerr Warner. Do you find that an interesting storyline, or is that just something we can that's been talked about and now we move on?
0: Yeah, I, I do feel like it's been talked about. That's why you know, I mentioned Eli earlier. There's actually so you know, I I could I write about this, you know, again, I've been here 21 years. I've, Eli's been he's been here for almost all of that. I've written about him so many times that earlier this year, when I was doing like my preseason column on the Giants, I had to search to make sure, like, did I write this about Eli last year? Like I had to search to make sure I wasn't writing the same thing. And I so I put my name and Star Ledger and Eli Manning into Nexus. And uh-huh. no lie, three hundred and fifty-five hits came up. Wow. I'm just, I'm just sitting there like, I have and they're not all columns, I get it, but like, I, every so I have written something about your life every day of a year of my life. Is that what I'm this is what this says here? Um yeah. So I, I it's just kind of incredible. Like it was that humbling moment, like, oh my God, what you know, I, how old am I? How old is he? Uh
1: um, I have this moment, Steve, where you're um I'm not religious, but you're at the pearly gates waiting to go to heaven, and God says, So what have you done with your life? Exactly. And you just pick up you just pick up the gun. You're just like, I'm done. I'll just go moment. back.
0: Thanks, 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 St. Peter. I appreciate it. Absolutely nothing. I'll, I'll be seeing you. Go
1: back to- <laughs> I wrote about Eli Manning's sprained wrist back in 2007. It was pretty good. I,
0: I, yeah, I've been writing about that man. That gets it. That's my entire life has been wasted on that on a bad on a bad football team. But hey, but it could be worse, I
1: guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. He kind of fascinates me. Was he? Um, he seems really. I mean, he just seems kind of boring and yeah. doesn't say that much and blah blah blah. Is there something interesting in the fact that he's boring or? Was he always a hard person to sort of generate those 355 pieces about? He was just never
0: going to give you anything. That's like just one of these guys who always was successful, always talked, always was in front of you, never dodged a question, but he just wasn't going to help you with, you know, fact information or wasn't going to give you an anecdote that you need. wasn't going to give you a juicy quote. He was just, you know, that that was just his thing. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. If you're going to be a quarterback in this market, you don't want to like, I mean, you see it happen even with like, Dick. Baker Hacker Mayfield just dresses poorly to a press conference and it's a story now, you know I mean? Like right. he just looks like a hobo for a day and it becomes a meme and everyone's talking about it, you know? So he just managed to avoid all that, which is sort of remarkable giving, you know, given all the attention he's had on him.
1: But for our purposes, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's made it that, you know, it's made it hard to do. I mean, is there really such a thing as a boring person or is he just portraying himself as a boring person? <clears throat> a guarded person is a better word.
0: I mean, you know, I think there is, there is a, There is a case to be made that he's boring, but he's definitely guarded. And, uh, I actually did this for his 10th, for his 10th anniversary, uh, with the Giants. I, I did a column like trying to find 10 things you didn't know about Eli Manning. And I spent, I mean, I thought I must have talked to. You know, two dozen people just trying to come up with anything. Uh, it actually came up with feel like he like he was he's actually really really knows his wines and has like a nerdy sound system in his in his in his condo at the time. Like I, I think I found like ten good ones and walked up. I walked up to him at the end and I told him what I was doing and he's like, well, yeah, maybe I'll look forward to seeing it. Maybe I'll learn something I didn't know too. And he walks away. You know, was like
1: typical. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> Did he ever read it? Do you think he has uh, no, it? No,
0: no way he read it. No way. <laughs> Absolutely zero chance.
1: <laughs> that would be good number eleven on your list. Interesting thing, number eleven. He definitely is not reading I, it. I
0: could I could have sat it, I could have put it on his chair, printed out, like taped it to his car windshield and he was gonna he was gonna roll the ball and throw it
1: away. Well, Stephen, I I'm so happy you did this and I uh I'm a huge admirer of your work, man. Freaking great and uh appreciate it. Same here, yeah. yeah Same I, here. I could yeah, I could talk for hours on this. But uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks. Cheers. It's been fun. Really a lot of fun. Well, I want to thank today's guest, Steve Politi, for joining me on Two Writers and Yang. You can follow Steve on Twitter, at Steve Politi, and read his work in the Star Ledger. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by The Dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.